Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Recently, a past Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, said that war between the U.S. and China is possible before the November elections. The current Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, says that's overstated, but said that a conflict is no longer inconceivable. In a recent document from BlackRock, the massive financial services firm that is massively influential in making government policy almost everywhere, said in a research document, quote, the pandemic added fuel to the geopolitical dynamics already underway. The post-coronavirus world is likely to be characterized by four key themes. First, the world is increasingly becoming bifurcated, with the U.S. and China at opposite poles. Intense rivalry looks set to affect nearly every dimension of the U.S.-China relationship, regardless of the U.S. election outcome. Other countries will increasingly be pushed to choose sides. Decoupling is focused on but not limited to the technology sector. This means investors need exposure to both markets as the center of gravity of global growth is moving to Asia. Second, the pandemic is poised to accelerate deglobalization as it magnifies nationalist and protectionist trends. The crisis adds to existing pressures such as global trade tensions and populism. This threatens to disrupt the web of global supply chains at the expense of efficiency. It may lead to onshoring the production of strategic goods. That's from BlackRock. That's in an advice to their investors. One thing is certain, as the U.S.-China relationship deteriorates, if the U.S. and China don't cooperate in fighting the pandemic, and the climate crisis, we're pretty much doomed, even if by some miracle we avoid nuclear war. As inherent to the geopolitical and economic realities, the rivalry is, we must find a way to overcome it. Now joining us is Lawrence Wilkerson. He's a retired United States Army Colonel and former Chief of Staff, United States Secretary of State Colin Powell. Larry is a distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Good to be with you, Paul. So, well, first of all, what do you make of what the two Australian former and current prime ministers are saying of Australia? Uh, one saying it's really dangerous. The other one says, yeah, maybe not that dangerous, but dangerous. I and mean, talking about actual conflict, armed conflict between the United States and China. Kevin Rudd is a Mandarin speaker and in many respects, uh, an expert on China. Um, I don't happen to agree full throatedly with what he said, but I do think that, uh, like my conversation not too long ago with John Mearsheimer, uh, where John said it's inevitable that we go to war with China, China goes to war with us, um, that it's getting closer to that possibility. And it's extremely dangerous, as you intimated, that that possibility is closer. Uh, it's extremely dangerous that it's anywhere out there in our future, if it is. Um, as for the sitting prime minister, uh, I'm not aware of his intellectual bona fides or his predisposition toward China one way or the other. So I can't really comment. I am aware of a lot of my Australian friends who don't think he's a very good prime minister. Um, all in all, this is, as you intimated again, a very, very dangerous time. 
not simply because we have an incompetent baboon sitting in the Oval Office with all manner of sycophant baboons arrayed all around him, but we also have a, a, a situation in the world that ought to be turning into parries into parries, that is to say, several states that more or less look at each other as equals and work diplomatically, economically, financially, and otherwise to try to cooperate to meet some really awesome challenges, two of which you hinted at, climate crisis and nuclear weapons, rather than be as we are, sitting around contemplating, not just contemplating, but working up new reasons for warfare. Uh, You can say that it's a product of the national security state that the United States has most assuredly become since World War II. You can say it's a product of Xi Jinping and the enlarged power and capability within their national security decision-making process of their military. Uh, That's what you do when you feed it with lots of money and grow it up and, and stoke it with some nationalism and so forth. You turn around one day, if you're a civilian on the Politburo, and you say, my God, what have I created? Well, that's where they almost are now in China, much the way we've been for some time now, at least since 9-11, possibly even before that, uh, dominated by the military instrument, dominated by war, dominated by national security. China's uh, very much in that boat, too. Uh, The belligerence they've shown recently towards India in the South China Sea and elsewhere uh, is an indication of that. So it's not a good time. Um, I'm sitting at lunch with uh, one of the premier, if not the premier, realist thinkers in America, John Mearsheimer, as I said, and he tells me it's inevitable that we're going to war with China. Well, with, within what time frame is he talking about? We didn't have a chance to discuss that. I, I, I suspect John would say, well, it will take a confluence of events that uh, will take in itself a precipitating event. Think uh, the assassination of the Archduke in Sarajevo in 1914. Um, I could think of several precipitating events. The most likely in my mind is something to do with Taiwan. Although increasingly, I see Taiwan as almost a fait accompli should China decide to move. Um, It will not move in an overt military fashion. It will simply let Taipei know that if it doesn't cooperate, much the way it let Hong Kong's leaders know, if it doesn't cooperate more fully with the mainland, and it will spell out what that more fully means, um, time is running out for Taipei. And I think that pressure will probably be acknowledged, perhaps, protested for a a short time, probably not publicly, but in private over Beijing, Taipei channels. And then Taipei will more or less, as Hong Kong has done, uh, subside. That is to say, it will become a part of the imperial mandate of heaven. Um, and I don't think the United States will do a darn thing. We'll, we'll probably issue demarches. Congress will stand up on its hind legs and pontificate and pass all kinds of Taiwan Protection Acts and everything else. I don't think we're going to go to war with China over Taiwan. Um, I may be wrong. Congress may just plunge us right into it, and we'll find out very quickly that uh, the way to resolve that conflict after we've taken brutal blows on both sides is nuclear weapons. 
and then we're at a really bad place. Well, that's you said in interviews with me previously that every war game that you were part of that kind of worked through what would happen with an armed conflict with China winds up in a nuclear war. And, and, and everybody, in theory, everybody that is at all informed knows that's the end of China, United States, and, and most human life on Earth. Um, so presumably they're in no hurry to get to that, uh, even in spite of saber rattling. I don't know that the Central Party School, the strategic thinkers for Beijing and the Politburo itself and Xi Jinping himself, I don't know that they think that way. I hope they do. I certainly hope they do, but I don't know that. Well, I know they've been, I mean, China for the last while has been uh, objecting. It gets almost no coverage in the American press or Western press, uh, objecting to the Trump getting out of these nuclear treaties and, and calling nuclear arms treaties and calling for new ones. And China is probably right now, I won't say probably, they are. All my contacts tell me they are embarked on a review, a thorough review of their own nuclear policy, the result of which will probably be a much more robust Chinese nuclear stockpile, uh, one that can, as, as we used to say in the old days, ride out a first strike and respond massively. That means lots more nuclear weapons for China. Most people don't understand that China doesn't have very many nuclear weapons at all. Mao Zedong thought they were stupid weapons. They didn't make any sense. But if others had them, he ought to have a few just so he could threaten those others in case. Um, They're getting ready to change that, I think, and become a full up, uh, I can strike you and get away with it power, which of course is nonsense. Nonsense for Russia, nonsense for the United States, nonsense for anyone to think that they can strike first and get away with it. As you intimated, we will have started a cycle of environmental change that added to climate crisis will put us out of action as human beings probably 50 years earlier. Well, if the, if the scientists are correct about nuclear winter, you only need a first strike a successful first strike to end most human life on Earth because the uh, within a year, the atmosphere is filled with so much uh, smoke and soot from the cities burning uh, that there's no agriculture left. It's worse than that, though, Paul. If you read uh, Bill Perry's and Tom Colina's new book, The Button, you, you understand I, uh, that book ought to be read by every citizen of the world, certainly by every American, that things are on such hair triggers now. Um, hair triggers, incidentally, that we tried to disassemble in 1991, 92, and 93, when Chairman Powell was head of the military. Uh, we tried to disassemble a lot of these things, but they're back in place again now. So your intimation that a first strike would do it, look, it's not going to be just the first strike because within seconds, the response will come. Within seconds, the response yeah, define, define hair trigger. What exactly is the mechanism, the steps within a hair trigger? Because I've heard anything from like 10 seconds to make a decision to 20 minutes. It just depends on the scenario. But you could get down, as Bill points out in his book, and I trust Bill. Uh, Bill Perry, only engineer ever to be Secretary of Defense. Bill Perry knows what he's talking about. Uh, not only was he there when several crises occurred, but he knows the, the engineering concepts behind these weapons and behind the structure that's been set up to use these weapons. So if you're looking at a situation where the President of the United States is going to act 
on information. In other words, he's going to act as soon as someone tells him that missiles are inbound. You're talking about seconds, minutes at most, perhaps eight to 10 minutes to make up your mind as to what you're going to do. And no one, here it is, no one in the national security establishment, indeed in the country, needs to be consulted. The president can turn to that major or that lieutenant colonel carrying the box, the package, and say, give it to me, enter the codes, and we're away with our strike back. And he's not the only one that can do that. Apparently, there's several hundred if they think for some reason there's been an attack and the president maybe is incapacitated but there's apparently uh, according to ellsberg and some others uh, a couple of hundred people if not more that can actually do the same thing that's a little bit of a stretch but it's it's technically true because there are things within continuity of government cog highly classified things that make that sort of a scenario possible but there are also checks and balances within that system. It's scary. I don't I don't want to downplay that. It's scary. But more scary to me is the fact that the president, without consulting anyone, can pop that button. In the BlackRock document, it says the intense rivalry looks as set to affect nearly every dimension of U.S.-China relationship, regardless of the U.S. election outcome, meaning whether Biden's in or not, the rivalry gets intensified. Do you think the danger of conflict is less if Biden is president? I think we've got a lot of speculating uh, going on right now, and I don't see a lot of it. It's very informed, and I don't necessarily include the BlackRock assessment in that because I haven't read the whole thing. But a lot of what I'm hearing is not very well informed. The first thing that's going to confront Biden, if if not uh, massive problems with the election and uh, Trump standing up MAGA TV on inaugura- inauguration day and beginning to delegitimize the Biden administration from the very start to include, if we don't change the Senate, not confirming any of his appointments, cabinet or otherwise. I mean, aside from that, Joe Biden's going to face an economic crisis probably more intense and deeper than the one Franklin Roosevelt confronted in 1932 and 33. So Joe Biden is going to be utterly consumed by the fact that the American economy is collapsing all around him, Uh, that 30 to 40 percent of Americans are out of work, that we've already printed trillions and trillions of extra dollars with absolutely nothing behind them to pay people to keep this from happening, to sort of hold back the wave, as it were. That's what's going to confront Joe Biden. That's what's going to confront his administration, a cat- catastrophic economic situation. So it's going to be extremely difficult to focus on getting foreign policy in order, getting things corrected like Iran, like Russia, like China, and so forth. Uh, Trump is leaving him a disaster in foreign policy, a disaster in security policy. Uh, Just look, we have Elliot Abrams taking over from Brian Hook with regard to Iran. Brian just announced he's leaving two disasters, but Elliot makes Brian look like a success. Oh, I didn't um, see that. Elliot Abrams is going yes. to be in charge. He's so going to handle Venezuela. Re- yeah, he's going to handle Venezuela and Iran. <laughs> Are they getting ready? 
Are they getting uh, more is, serious about conflict with Iran? Uh, I think we probably are in for an October surprise that would involve Iran more than it would vo- involve China. So that's where I differ with Kevin Rudd. Between now and November, if there is an October surprise, so to speak, it's probably going to involve Iran, not China. It might involve it. China because China makes it involve China, but I think the U.S. is going to seek to make it with Iran. Yeah, I can't see China getting militarily involved. No, I can't. But on the other hand, there's a, a, a growing Iran-China economic relationship. $400 billion. Uh, I mean, look at what we've done to ourselves. Here we have Gazprom completing the last leg of the some $12 billion Nord Stream pipeline, which is going to bring the rest of Europe's needs in terms of energy to it from Gazprom. Thank you very much, Mr. Putin. All at the same time that my electric company, for example, the second largest on the East Coast behind only Duke Power, has put some $12 billion over the last four years, 10-year program, to build the only LNG plant on the East Coast of the United States and ship it all to where? Europe. Well, Europe doesn't need it now. I'm waiting for the stock in Dominion to plunge. (laughs) And BlackRock's advice to investors, their way to deal with this growing rivalry is to invest in both polars. Put your money in China and the United States. Yeah, I'd say put it in in China, the United States, Iran. You know, pick someone who might come out at the other end. Uh, Unfortunately, we're all in this together. The, one of the people being talked about as vice president uh, for Biden is Susan Rice. Yeah, I can just see Trump now. Benghazi Rice, Benghazi Rice. <laughs> um, if, if Biden actually goes there, it tells us something about what he thinks of where his foreign policy is going. She's, a, she, I mean, she's quite the hawk. Yes, and I hope he doesn't go there. I, I hope, hope, hope he doesn't go there. I hope we have someone, one, who uh, at least looks competent and isn't a member of the national security state in good standing, two, is capable of becoming president, not just after Biden, but perhaps even during Biden, and three, someone whom the American people can look at and say, finally, finally, someone who tells the truth, someone who is humanly decent, someone whom we probably can trust, and someone who has the best interests of the United States foremost in their mind. Because for almost four years now, we've had the exact opposite of that. Do you see that person? Not immediately. And that's a, that's a problem. Uh, I, I had a conversation with someone the other day. Um, I started out being opposed to what the person was proposing. The more he talked, the more I thought it was a positive idea, though. And the person he was advancing was Michelle Obama. But, <laughs> I've, been, I've been predicting that for about a year and a half. <laughs> well, I, I understand that from other sources that she has been approached, whatever that means, and that uh, there's no chance. So, Yeah, I can't I would, see why she'd want to do it. I, I wouldn't blame her a bit. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't blame her a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go back to the Biden situation. So whoever the vice president is, he's dealing with an economic collapse, as you said, 
worse than the 1930s. Uh, and, and of course, it won't be just the United States. If the United States is in such deep shit economically, it's going to be a global crisis. There's no way it's going to be confined to the United States. And it's going to involve China, too, because China's still very dependent on the American market. Uh, this a, decoupling I, a, hasn't happened. I'm on a call yesterday with a, with a group of people, one of whom was uh, an investment banker from Germany. And she began to talk about Stuttgart. I know Stuttgart well. That's where the headquarters for European Command is. That's where I used to take my Marine Corps seminars. I love Stuttgart. She said it's going to be a basket case in a very short time, that the automobile industry and all the ancillaries around it are just collapsing, and that soon Stuttgart will be the poor man of, uh, of Europe. I, I couldn't believe it, but she knows more about the situation than I. So does this make conflict more or less likely with China? I mean, if China and the U.S. and most of the world is deep, deep crisis, uh, is conflict more or less likely? History sort of screams that these are the sorts of situations that produce conflict and produce intense and difficult and sometimes you know, world-spanning conflict, although we only have the last century or so to judge that from. But I would say yes. Hmm. Well, does it ever call for a, a people's movement in the United States that demands a different kind of foreign policy? Man, and, very uh, much so. Very much so. And, and, and Paul, a different culture. You know, this consumption culture is driving us into hell. We have to figure out a way to get off this predatory, capitalist-fueled consumption culture. We must. It's debilitating for our minds, our souls, our psyche. It, it destroys us when all we do is think about the next 24 hours of consumption. Um, it's, it's incredible. Uh, it's ruined even the productivity of this country to the extent that we now make products, planned products to last two or three years when we used to make them to last 20 because we want to sell eight or nine of them in that 20 year span rather than just one. Um, we have built a system that is poisonous, perverse, and it's killing our very soul and not to mention our pocketbook. Do you, you get to talk to a lot more people in the elites than I do. The people's movement that I say we have to have, it ain't that in sight at the moment, not something of the scale that can really uh, put pressure. Uh, forget Trump. Let's assume there's a Biden government because it's going to have tremendous pressure on it to do what we're talking about because the pressure coming from the financial sector and the military industrial complex and so on is going to be enormous and his history says he'll bend to it um, but within the elites themselves whether it's military or diplomatic or finance whatever do you see any sense that uh, from people that they get there needs to be a transformative moment here no i don't in fact, uh, as you were just talking, I was thinking about what I just read a moment or two ago about Marv Thornberry and Jim Inhofe and others involved in apportioning 
massive amounts of coronavirus intended dollars, taxpayer dollars, to the Pentagon and trying to justify it trying to justify it based on the Pentagon send its hospital ship to New York and so forth and so on. That's a pittance. And so tell me, Mr. Thornberry, tell me, Mr. Inhofe, what more F-15s lightning strike fighters have to do with the Pentagon's coronavirus contributions. Give me a break. These people are brain dead, Paul. They're brain dead and they're so captured by the money that Lockheed Martin and other defense contractors dole out to them on a routine basis. They're so dependent on that largesse, they couldn't get out of this mindset if they tried. So if we're gonna get out of it, it's gonna take some kind of really apoplectic event or it's going to take a massive awakening of at least a sizable minority, if not majority of the American people, and a complete slate cleaning of the current leadership in Washington, and possibly some of the leadership across the states too, and a replacement of them by people who understand at least somewhat what you're talking about. All right, thanks for joining us, Larry. Thanks for having me, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.